In December of 2018, the University of California, San Diego, dedicated a new sculpture designed by artist Mark Bradford. Bradford wanted to create a piece that would be as tall as was legally permitted, which was 200 feet for a freestanding statue. If you look at it, it's a rather unassuming piece. It's a 196-foot galvanized steel pole with a four-foot LED light on top of it. The flashing of the light can be seen throughout the campus. If you're invited to have dinner at the chancellor's house, you may even see the flashing. In the first couple of dinners that were held after it was established, people were wondering, what is the purpose of that light? You know, is it so that airplanes see it and don't crash? Well, the LED light flashes day and night. A simple four-word message in Morse code. A message when you consider where it was put and who designed it kind of makes one scratch their head. Bradford was asked if this message would ever change. You know, can you reprogram the LED to flash different Morse code to create a different message. And his response was, no, this isn't an airport. The message won't change. The message he chose was one that he knew would be contradictory. But he chose the same message that Samuel Morse first transmitted across the newly installed telegraph line from the chambers of the Supreme Court to Baltimore on May 24, 1844. A simple four-word question. What hath God wrought? And you think about that message being proclaimed, well, at least for people who understand Morse code, on a secular campus. That message was the first message transmitted via the telegraph. It's a simple question, and I believe it is a question that should drive us as Christians to share the answer to that question with those around us. What has God done for us? We'll see this morning in Mark chapter 5, first of all, Jesus and the one who was despised. As we read this morning, Jesus and the disciples are coming over, crossing the Sea of Galilee into the country of the Gadarenes. They're crossing, Luke records for us in Luke 8.26 that this is the Sea of Galilee. They head across the Sea of Galilee and land in the city of the Gadarenes. So it's a city that was in the region of Decapolis, as we'll see identified later in verse 20. Decapolis was a group of ten cities. Okay, if you go to your math, you have a decagon, a ten-sided figure, a 
that, that's all I can remember right now, which is terrible because I taught math. But deca, the prefix for 10, polis, city. So it's a group of 10 cities that were on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. These 10 cities had a league. They were actually Gentile city-states that were modeled after the Greek pattern of political life. And scholars believe that around Decapolis there was also stationed a troop of Roman soldiers, which is something that we're going to need to remember later on. And Jesus and his disciples, they cross over the sea, and as soon as they land on the shore, as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, they are met with resistance. Mark and Luke record that there is one man possessed by devils. Matthew records that there were two. Now, do we need to get worried that there's a discrepancy? We found the error in the Bible. No, we, we don't need to get worried about that. That There very well may have been the two that Matthew recorded, but Mark and Luke focus on one of them, and we'll see why, uh, hopefully by the end of our time together this morning, because of his response to Jesus. This one who was despised, is described as living in the tombs. We see that he is living in the caves, and these caves would have either been natural caves carved by the water or carved out by man. Essentially, these caves would have been where the dead would be placed for burial. This location of his dwelling, particularly if he was Jewish would have been an unclean place living among dead bodies. We see also that this man himself had an unclean spirit. Mark records for us the demon that was possessing him was an unclean demon. We see that he is one who is unbindable. The multiple negatives that Mark uses are used to emphasize the supernatural strength associated with him. You know, when we have words that are repeated, okay, in English we understand, okay, a double negative makes it positive and they cancel each other out. Well, in the original Greek here, what they're doing is they're strengthening, strengthening the argument. And you see this man that no one could bind him, no, not with chains, it just discusses and talks about the fact that there is nothing that can control this individual. The chains that had been meant to bind him to keep the people protected were not enough to stop him. He's presented as a terror to the whole region. And as a result, he becomes despised and outcast of society, dwelling in the mountains and in the tombs. But we also see the description here that Mark gives of him. Not only is he an outcast from society, presented as a terror to society, but we see another side of him. We see someone who is in a hopeless condition. Crying out, cutting himself with stones. The idea here of the crying out is a continual, unearthly scream driven by intense emotion. 
The cutting himself with stones, lacerating one's body, was often associated with pagan religious practices, attempting to appease the false gods. And we see an individual who is not just rejected by society, but we see an individual who cannot find peace for themselves. He's crying out, trying to find peace, crying to any who would answer or listen. We see him cutting himself, trying to appease whatever gods may be out there. It's a man whom society had given up on. He was a man whom his friends had given up on. He was a man whom his family had given up on. He was a man whom as it seemed, even the gods had given up on. Yet this was a man for whom Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. You read the narrative, and just to jump ahead a little bit, Jesus and his disciples cross over. They're met with this man. Jesus casts the demons out, and immediately Jesus is told to leave by the people from the city. And Jesus then leaves. And we may say, well, that's a waste of a trip. Cross the Sea of Galilee and then go back. But Jesus went because he knew he had a meeting with that man. That one who was in a hopeless state. We look at those around us in society, those who are screaming out for help from any who will listen. Those who have no idea who they are, so they make up their own identity to try to fit in somewhere. Crying out for help and we sit back and we say, oh, they're just hopeless. There's no help for them. But that's not what our Savior does. He goes to this one who is screaming out, crying out for hope. How often do we give up on someone? His family had given up on him. His friends had given up on him. Society had given up on him. But his God had not. How often do we share the gospel with somebody once or twice and they reject it? And so we just write them off. Well, they're never going to accept it, so we're done. And when this man sees Jesus afar off, verse 6, he runs and he worships him. These demons possessing this man knew who Jesus was. The action of their giving worship to Jesus demonstrates their recognition. The request that they make to Jesus demonstrates their recognition. They go to him and they say, what have I to do with thee? This was a common idiom in the Greek. Literally, what is it to us and to thee? You know, we recognize Jesus who you are. This is just a man who's an outcast. This is an individual whom all have given up on. Jesus, you don't need this one. Let us have him. Let us deal with him. Jesus, you don't need to get involved in the life of this man here. What is it to you? Jesus, stay in your lane, okay? 
Living in the region of Decapolis, he may very well have been a Gentile. Jesus, he's not even one of your chosen Jews. Just go away. Leave us alone. Let us do our thing with this guy. They recognize who he is. The title with which they assign Jesus demonstrates their recognition. They address him, Jesus, as the son of the Most High God. They have a right theology. They know who Jesus is. They have a faith in Jesus, but it is not a saving faith. As James tells us in James 2, verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. These demons recognize who Jesus was, and they come and they fall on their face before him. Jesus, just leave us alone. Let us do what we want with this man. They even have a knowledge of their future judgment, demonstrating their recognition. I adjure adjure thee by God, torment me not. Jesus, I implore you. These demons are literally begging Jesus to leave them alone because they know the power that he has. In Matthew 8, 29, they ask him a question. Are you come hither to torment us before the time? They know what's coming for them. They know their end judgment. Jesus, are you going to come and cast us into that judgment before it's time? Because Jesus had told them, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he, Jesus, asked him, what is thy name? Jesus is not asking the name, as some would suppose, that if you know the name of the demon... And you can speak the name of the demon. That gives you authority over that demon. And we see that even in culture today. You know, if you have the, can say the name of a devil, you have power over that. Jesus didn't need to know his name in order to have power over him. Rather, Jesus is asking the question to reveal to us the true state of this man. The demon, and he responded, and he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. The word Legion is a Roman military unit of about 6,000 soldiers. You know, we think about it, are are there 6,000 demons in this man? I would see no reason to think that there wouldn't be. Oh, well, they're demons, they're lying. Yes, demons do lie, but who are they speaking to? The one who compels them to speak truth. But even if there's not 6,000, there's a bunch of them. And we know because they're about to go into the swine and drive these swine to their death. Mark records there's 2,000 pigs, so there's at least 2,000. I don't know about you, but I think if someone is possessed with one demon, that's bad enough. Let alone thousands. And again, we see the demons in verse 10 begging Jesus to have mercy. How odd is that? That the demons are imploring Jesus, begging Jesus to have mercy on them. When we look at society and we see people who literally are shaking their fist in God's face saying, what are you going to do about it? These demons know the power that he has. 
They implore him, they besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. And the word their country is the region or the territory. Luke records for us in Luke 8.31 that they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And the deep there is the word the abyss. We see a picture of this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Jesus, have mercy on us. Don't send us where we belong. But instead, they plead with him to be allowed to enter into the swine. There were in the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the demons besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. They can do nothing without the permission of God. And Jesus gives them permission, and immediately this unclean spirits went out, entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. The demons immediately left the man, and there were enough of them to enter into 2,000 pigs. And we see here demonstrated the deity of Christ. And just as Satan was not allowed to afflict Job more than what God allowed in Job chapter 1, we see that these demons are only able to do what Jesus allows them to do. And if we can take just a brief excursus on the deity of Christ in Mark chapters 4 and chapter 5. In this brief passage, a period that would be 24 to 36 hours, you see Jesus and his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes up and Jesus demonstrates that he is God by demonstrating his power over the storm, his power over nature. They land into this area of the Gadarenes and we see this man with the unclean demon and Jesus demonstrates his power over the devils by casting them out. When Jesus and his disciples then get back into the boat and cross back, we see Jesus demonstrating his power over sickness by healing this woman who has been plagued with an issue of blood for years. And right after that, we see Jesus demonstrating his power over death by raising Jairus' daughter. Jesus is God. And we can take comfort in the fact that no matter what situation we are in, we do not go through anything that Jesus does not allow. And that Jesus does not have a purpose for us to go through so that we can be made more into his image. And Jesus allows these demons and they are go into the swine. The swine immediately drown. In the next section of verses, we see Jesus and the doubters. They that fed the swine, these swine herders, what are they going to do? They're going to flee. I don't know how much they're able to see of what's going on. But if they're just sitting there taking care of the pigs, and all of a sudden the pigs start acting crazy, 
and go tearing off down a cliff and jumping into the sea and drowning, I would be a little frightened too. And these guys just go running into town and they began to see what happened and tell what was done. They come down to Jesus and they see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They went back to tell what they had seen. And we would assume that they would be telling what had happened with the emphasis on the state of the pigs. Oh man, we just lost our jobs. We just lost our source of income. The Roman soldiers that would have been stationed there, scholars believe that these pigs were being raised to feed the Roman army that was stationed nearby. You know, sometimes we may think, well, what are a bunch of individuals who had pigs as an unclean animal because they were Jews? Why are they raising pigs? Well, remember, the Decapolis was a Gentile area. And they're raising these pigs to feed the Roman army, so... These pigs are gone. What are you going to do? Um, sorry, sir. You guys don't get lunch for a month. There, there's some fear and there's some trepidation with that. But that's not what Mark points out is their message. They told that they, what they saw, or they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil. And almost as a side note, and also concerning the pigs. They see what's happened to this man, and they are telling what has happened to this man. Matthew records in 8.33, they told everything, and specifically what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. These people aren't concerned about their livelihood. They're not concerned about their job. They're telling that something has happened to this outcast. And when they see the man that was possessed with the devil... This man that had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. And I read that. And it kind of hits me a little bit. Who are these people? These people would have been family members who had seen their loved one cast out. They would have been friends who had seen their loved one cast out. They would have been people in the town, possibly, who had bound him with chains, bound him with fetters to protect themselves. And this man who was uncontrollable, this man who was an outcast, who was possessed of devils, is now sitting with Jesus. He is clothed. He is in his right mind. These people should have been praising God for what he has done. But what do they do? They're afraid. Now, how often do we see God do a wonderful work in somebody else and our first response is not praise God for what they've done? They were afraid. They dreaded Christ's power. They saw that he was almighty. They saw that he was God. They saw his power, but they did not seek to know his love as this man had. The residents became frightened because of this miracle. Possibly they were concerned about the disruption of the normal routine. Disruption of the status quo. 
You know, we get in our routine of life and we like it to go a certain way that it goes every day. And if something comes up that we don't expect, we don't like that. Possibly concern over the loss of the property. But more compelling, one commentator points off, is the reality that they are ungodly people who have just come face to face with the spiritual power of Jesus. And when we see individuals come face to face with who Jesus is, oftentimes what is the first response? It's a rejection of him. They reject Christ. Mark records that they pleaded with him. They prayed him to leave the country. An interesting, that word that Mark uses there, that they prayed him to leave, is the same word used of legion in verse 10 when he asked to be allowed to go into the swine. We see the demons prayed as well. And Jesus granted their request. These people prayed to Jesus that he would leave. And Jesus complies with their request. These people who had come face to face with the Son of God. They rejected him. And how often in the scriptures do we see those who have a clear demonstration of who God is, of who Jesus is, reject it? As John records in John chapter 12, Jesus has just prayed and asks God the Father to glorify himself through the Son. And John records, then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it. Okay, Jesus has just prayed, Father, glorify yourself in me. And God responds audibly. And the people who are standing there say, Strange weather we're having. I didn't know we'd be having thunder. Those who stood by, therefore, and heard it said that it thundered. Not wanting to acknowledge the reality of who God is and what he does, they explain it away. We were reminded on Wednesday night as we've been going through the book of Revelation how often these individuals who are going through what can only be known as the clear wrath of God and their response to God and his power is not one of repentance, but instead Revelation chapter 9 verse 20 tells us that they which were not killed by these plagues repented not of the works of their hands. They doubled down on their sin. And that, unfortunately, is the common theme of unsaved man. But we come to the third aspect, verses 18 through 20, Jesus and the delivered. And when he, Jesus, was come into the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. This man who is formerly possessed by the demons prays to go with Jesus. And that word praise is the same word praise that the demons did. And Jesus said yes to the demons. It's the same word praise that the townspeople did when they asked Jesus to go. And Jesus said yes. And this man who has a relationship now with Jesus, who has a love for Jesus, prays to Jesus, let me be with you. 
And to this man, Jesus says no. We'd think it would be flipped. Jesus would say no to the devils, he'd say no to the doubters, and he'd say yes to his child. But Jesus doesn't grant this request. As one commentator said, the cured man in his gratitude and admiration longs to stay with Jesus. Jesus, however, gives him the harder task of staying at home and explaining there the new life that he had been given. Spurgeon said Jesus knew that this man could serve him better by bearing testimony among those who knew him to the great things the Lord had done for him. Now, how often do we as believers just have that love for Christ that I just want to be with him? Jesus, you've done so much for me. I was hopeless. I had no peace. And yet you gave me the hope. You gave me the peace. And we want to spend that time with him. Jesus, however, gives him a command. Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. Jesus gives him a task, and this man obeys. He departs, and he begins to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him. He goes home, and he tells his family what Jesus has done for him. He goes home, and he tells his friends what Jesus has done for him. And he doesn't stop there. Mark records for us, Luke records for us, that he goes throughout the entire region, publishing in this ten-city-state area how great things... Jesus had done for him. Which means he is giving his salvation testimony, what Jesus has done for him, to the same group of people that had just said, Jesus, we don't want you, go away. Despite the fact that he knew they rejected him, that they knew that they had said no, he goes and he tells those people what, Jesus, what great things Jesus had done for him. And we see those who had previously rejected Christ. Mark records that they marveled at what he has done. And as I was going through this with verse 19, go and tell them what Jesus has done for you. Giving our testimony. The Lord just really impressed upon me the second part of that command that Jesus gives. It's not just go out and tell people how, what Jesus has done for you. But he also says to tell them how Jesus had compassion on you. This one who had been bound... This one who had been kicked out of society. This one who had not felt love from anyone... Jesus has compassion on him. How often do we as Christians get caught up in the righteous indignation against sin? Which ought to happen. We see Jesus doing that as he cleanses the temple a few times. But we neglect the compassion of Christ. As we talked about in Sunday school, yes, God is a God who is just, who will judge sin 
rightly, but he is also a God who is loving and he is a God who is merciful. Jesus is a man, he is a God who demonstrated compassion. He showed love to the unlovable. He gave hope to the hopeless. And if we think about it, that's who we were. We were his enemies. And yet when we were his enemies, he demonstrated his love toward us by dying for us. And as this man is challenged to tell, yes, the great things that Jesus has done for him, he's also challenged by Jesus and encouraged by Jesus to don't forget about the compassion that Jesus demonstrated to him. You know, there's an old expression, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And as we give the gospel and as we share what Jesus has done for us, do we bring in the compassion that Jesus showed to us as well? The best proof of our devotion is our faithful witness to the great things that the Lord hath done. I think the reason that Mark and that Luke focus on this one individual, whereas Matthew mentions that there are two, is because of this one's response. He who has been redeemed by Jesus is now going and he is giving his testimony. He is telling what Jesus has done for him to those around him, to those who have rejected Jesus. And I don't think this was a story he just told once. Okay, if something amazing happens to you, how many times do you tell somebody? You know, we say, well, stop me if you've heard this one. Well, it's only the fifth time you've told me that great story of your past. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just exciting. What great things has Jesus done for us? What compassion has he had on us? Are we like this man who had been delivered from his internal torment, now going and giving the good news of Jesus to those around us? As we conclude this morning, I just need to ask the question, have you been delivered? Are you saved? If you're here this morning or if you're watching online and there has not been a point in your life where you have had the hope of Christ given to your hopelessness or the peace of Christ to your peaceless life, you have not come to him as your Savior, may today be that day. But those of us who have been saved, what hath God wrought? What has God done for you? Are we publishing among our friends how great things Jesus has done for us? Even those who we may consider to be hopeless. Even those who we may consider to be outcasts and rejects. Even those who have rejected the gospel before. Are we continuing to tell them how great things Christ has done for us and the compassion that he has on us?
Philip Bliss would often travel with Dwight L. Moody, participate in the meetings that Moody would put on. During one meeting, Moody told the story of a shipwreck on a dark and stormy night. That's where all the good stories take place. On a dark and stormy night, a large passenger boat cautiously edged toward the Cleveland Harbor. The pilot knew that he could only find the harbor channel by keeping two lower shore lights in line with the main beacon. Are you sure this is Cleveland? asked the captain. Quite sure, sir, replied the pilot. Where are the lower lights? the captain asked. Gone out, sir, was the pilot's reply. The pilot turned the wheel, but in the darkness missed the channel. The boat crashed on the rocks and many lives were lost that night. Moody's closing words at that meeting were, Brethren, the master will take care of the great lighthouse. Let us keep the lower lights burning. By the next meeting that Bliss had with Moody, he had taken those closing words of Moody and penned the words to a new hymn which he used to close the meeting that night. That hymn is hymn number 371 in our hymnal. Let the lower lights be burning. The first verse states, Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore. But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning, send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. We don't know who we're going to come in contact with who needs the hope that Jesus provides, or the peace that he offers, or the compassion. But may we be encouraged to go out and tell our friends, our family, what God has wrought in our lives. Father, we thank you for this demonstration of the love and compassion that your son had towards one who could find no hope or peace, who was a reject in society. God, we thank you that he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has provided those of us who have called on his name as Savior with that same hope and peace and given that same compassion to us. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would drive us forward to share what you have done in our lives with those with whom we come in contact with. Lord, may we be willing to spread what you have done for us. May we keep the lower lights burning. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.